Well, after delivering our 12 Thanksgiving dinners on Thanksgiving Day with Southside Mission, my wife Tina and I gathered with a few of our family members at my parents' home for your traditional turkey, mashed potatoes, and gravy and dressing dinner. Uh, and like some of you, one of the things that I enjoyed in the later evening was a cold turkey sandwich. You uh, take a couple of pieces of bread, and you lather it up with Miracle Whip and ketchup, and then you you know, douse it with a generous helping of white meat, and then you uh, wash it down with a diet root beer. Live in large, baby. Now, today we're going to partake of a Thanksgiving sandwich of a little different variety as we worship with the 145th Psalm, and we're reminded that God's good. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good. At the start of this brand new week, We declare that you are good. You are good all the time. And we thank you for an opportunity to gather together with uh, friends, both old and new, and and to say uh, our lives belong to you, the good God, and we want our lives to count for you. And we pray that you would take our gathering together today as a a, uh, token of our love and desire to make a difference for you. We welcome you here among us in this room and right next door where our kids are worshiping and learning and growing as well. Put power on your word to our lives. It's our prayer in your name. Amen. Well, in the United States, the modern Thanksgiving holiday tradition is commonly traced to a poorly documented good harvest celebration in Plymouth, Massachusetts, 1621. But the holiday uh, history in North America is actually rooted in English traditions that date back to the Reformation. It was during the reign of King Henry VIII in reaction to the 95 religious holidays and 52 Sundays on the Catholic church calendar where people were required to attend church and mass and forego work that some Puritans actually wished to completely eliminate all of the church holidays, including both Christmas and Easter. And they were to be replaced by specially marked days of fasting or days of thanksgiving. In response to uh, the, the plethora of days on the Catholic calendar, they were to respond to the, the events that the Puritans uh, viewed as in the providence of God. For instance, unexpected disasters or threats of judgment expressed perhaps in a drought or flood, an act of nature, uh, they were to be um, responded to by days of fastings. And then there were special blessings viewed as coming from the hand of God, like a victory in a war battle or a bountiful harvest or the stop of an epidemic. They called for days of thanksgiving. And in the early days of our colonies, both religious and civil leaders were calling for these days of thanksgiving, expressed either in an annual harvest festival or an actual religious worship service. It wasn't uh, for about 150 years later when George Washington, as president of the United States, proclaimed the first nationwide Thanksgiving celebration and holiday when he um, marked the 26th of November in 1789 as, quote, a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many and signal favors of the Almighty God, end quote. I kind of find it interesting that 
leaders in both the church and the government have attempted to legislate from the outside in what God intended to permeate our lives from the inside out all along. Perhaps you're familiar with the Apostle Paul's writing in, uh, to the Thessalonian church when he said, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for those of you who belong to Christ Jesus. And in the New Testament epistle to the Colossians, we read in chapter 3, verse 15, always be thankful. You see, God's desire for us as his children is, is to grow up and look like our older brother Jesus. And his life, his ministry, was marinated with thankfulness. It wasn't reserved, you know, for uh, a special day, not compartmentalized into one religious service. It was his entire life lived in a, a natural rhythm of thankfulness. And so the call to those of us who are followers of Christ is to be thankful people, period. Have you ever been around old and grumpy people? Uh, I'm not thinking of any of you, of course. Uh, Well, they're just no fun. Uh, Now, I understand that maybe they have a long list of reasons for being grumpy. You know, maybe they're sick or in pain or life has dealt a a great deal of disappointment and loss. So I I give them, you know, credit and understanding for that. But I just kind of think, you know, I don't want to grow old and be a grumpy, thankless person. I'm grateful for the Thanksgiving holiday, like many of you are. You know, many of us, uh, not all, those of you who work in retail, accepted. Uh, we get a day off of work or, or several days. We get to spend time with uh, as we gather together with friends and family and eat a, a lovingly prepared meal and then stay up way too late and watch too many movies. Um, but it, it's a, it, it serves as a signal to God that we're thankful for his favor and blessing in our lives. And it's with a desire as a Christ follower to grow to be more thankful that I'd like to invite you this morning to turn in your Bible or open your Bible app to the 145th Psalm, where we'll spend some time this morning. Now, as you're you're turning there, let me say just a couple of things. This Psalm is a Thanksgiving sandwich of a slightly different kind than many of us ate this week. It opens, verses 1 and 3, to three, and it closes, verse 21, with an exclamation of praise. And you can kind of think of that as the bread on the sandwich. And then the meat in between, verses 4 to 20, is a powerful exclamation of praise. Now, there are two things uh, th- that escape the attention of most English readers. The first is that this poem, or more literally this song, is a Hebrew acrostic. It was originally written in Hebrew by David, King David. And what this means is that each verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse 1 would begin with A, verse 2, B, verse 3, C, and so forth. And this means that it's a very carefully, thoughtfully crafted expression of thanksgiving and praise to, to God. It would have been a very compelling musical composition. That was not easy to do. Now, the original hearers or singers, as it were, would have noticed this unique feature almost immediately, but it escapes our attention almost entirely. The second thing I want you to know is that many scholars believe that this was one of 
David's last, if not the last psalm that he composed. It, it carries an inscription at the beginning of the psalm in the Hebrew word Talilah. Uh, and it's unique to this psalm. Of all 150, it, it's unique. It, it uses the, the word in the Hebrew uh, root from which we get the word hallelujah, which many of you know means in English, praise the Lord. Now, the word is actually introduced in the psalm in verse 21, I will praise the Lord, or more literally, we would read it, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And it's almost as if David wanted this name, Talilah, uh, to like be reserved for the last of his psalms for sake of an impression. Uh, you know, it's often said that what you say at the last breath is that which is most important. And could could have been the same thing for David. His voice was now uh, about to be hushed in this life, and yet, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he knew that 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 it would never be silent in the world to come, forever cemented in the words of the Scripture. And while the the, the sound of his voice would be silent, his last praise the Lord would never be silent, and his his concluding admonition for all nations to praise him would ring through history. So let's read now together Psalm 145. You can follow along on the screen as well. I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. He's most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. Everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness. They will sing with joy about your righteousness. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. All your works will thank you, Lord, and your faithful followers will praise you. They'll speak of the glory of your kingdom. They'll give examples of your power. They'll tell about your mighty deeds and about the majesty and glory of your reign. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You rule throughout all generations. The Lord always keeps his promises. He's gracious in all he does. The Lord helps the fallen and lifts those bent beneath their loads. The eyes of all look to you in hope. You give them their food as they need it. When you open your hand, you satisfy the hunger and thirst of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in everything he does. He's filled with kindness. The Lord is close to all who call upon him. Yes, to all who call on him in truth. He grants the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cries for help and rescues them. The Lord protects all those who love him, but he destroys the wicked. I will praise the Lord and may everyone on earth bless his holy name forever and ever. Well, verses one to three are that a set of opening exclamations. I, I love what David said. I will. 
See, by the exercise of his strength and his will, he chooses to worship and thank God. If this is the last psalm that he wrote, so it's at the close, uh, you know, the curtain is closing, the shadow is long on his life now. His life has been filled with a wide variety of, on one hand, blessings, uh, powerful favor, multitude of military victories over his enemies, building Jerusalem, the holy city, enjoying intimacy with God. And it's all mixed together, on the other hand, with outright rebellion and brazen sin, uh, brokenness in his family, disappointment with his children, dreams to build God's house that were crumbled, all mixed together. David willed in that stew pot to praise the Lord. I just think it's a compelling example uh, uh, that despite our circumstances, we can rouse our wills to praise and thank the good God. In his old age, David said he does this every day. That's powerful. Verse three, because God is most worthy and no one can measure his greatness. Now, verses 4 to 20 are the the meat of the Thanksgiving sandwich. And and we learn here about the Lord's goodness and his his greatness. Verses 4 to 7 are a call to remember and tell. Now, you see, in the time that this song was originally composed and then written, very few people, average workaday people like you and me, could read or write. And so history and life lessons were communicated orally. And very often they sang songs that told the story. Verse 7, they sing with joy. And here the Holy Spirit is charging each of us and our, uh, our legacy, our children and our grandchildren to declare and to teach them through the song, through the story of God's mighty acts. And verse 5, we saw that we're to speak of God's character. The text reads, his majestic, glorious splendor and his deeds. It speaks of his wonderful miracles, God's character and his deeds, who he is and what he does. Now, interestingly, the Hebrew people had a structure designed by God in order to uh, make sure that this happened. Since it was originally modeled in the creation itself, when God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh, he had instituted the Sabbath, a 24-hour period of both rest from all of our work and devotion to God that was expressed in worship and time with family and eating together. And then in addition, God's people celebrated three special feasts every year. And these annual feasts were a one-week Sabbath, they rested from work, and the Israelites would gather together with their family and their friends and their community. They would eat together, they would worship, they would offer sacrifices to God, and they would recount in story and in song God's blessing and his favor, their history. And so can't you see how the rhythm of God's people's lives was punctuated with these regular opportunities for expression of thanksgiving in a way that we know little about? Once a week, three times a year, and then actually every seven years, they celebrated the year of Jubilee, which was like a one-year-long party. 
Now, the Thanksgiving holiday, you know, for us is really a, a, a good start. But, but I think we, the church in general, would all do well to more highly prioritize our gathering together every week itself as an act of worship and thanksgiving, not just when it's convenient for us or when it's a holiday. Now, verses 8 to 9 extol God's wonderful goodness. And just just listen to these adjectives and do a mental check to see if this is how you think of God. He's merciful, compassionate, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. He's good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. That's the God we gather to worship. Now, the word unfailing love is translated a number of other ways in in your English Bible. Mercy, steadfast love. But most often, nearly 200 times when it's used in the in the Old and New Testament, it's translated loving kindness. And it's a compound word because the translators have a difficult time actually giving an accurate sense of the original Hebrew word, hesed. It's a unique word speaking of God, his nature and his character that are disposed to act kindly. And that, that's what this powerful word, loving kindness, is. And I think David is using it frequently to arrest our attention and saying the God and King of the Old Testament is overwhelmingly loving and kind. His nature is that way, and he's disposed to act. He's not an angry father figure standing at the top of the celestial staircase with with veins bulging in his neck, angry and ready to squash you like a bug because of your sin. But that's how often we think of God. But David is saying, no, no, no. God is merciful and compassionate and he is slow. He's good to everyone. The New Testament gives us this insight through the words of Jesus. He gives his sunlight on both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. He is good to everyone. And I think, frankly, part of the challenge that we as the church have is to is to excavate and remedy this mistaken notion that has been perpetrated by the church and historically in art forms and in music that communicate to the world a message about God other than who he really is. That's our challenge. We arrive at verse 10. Verse 10 is like the chorus of a song. It's it's a, a, a time when we like reflect on something we've already heard or sung. It, it's what's illustrated on the cover uh, so beautifully by, by Adam Morrison in, in, a, in a, a textual graphic. That's, it comes from the verse 10. You could think of it as a response to the powerful declarations of verses 8 and 9. And we read in this verse, All your works will thank you, Lord, and your faithful followers will praise you. We would translate it perhaps more accurately. All that you have made will praise you. And really, it's the only fitting response when you think about it of the entire creation. Every person in every age and every culture, the animal kingdom, trees and plants and mountains and hills and rocks and rivers and rainforests and deserts and sun and moon and stars and the billions of galaxies in unending space all join together to praise 
God. That's the chorus. Verses 11 to 13 share the context of our praise, and that's the glory of God's kingdom. Now, we've been saying all fall that the larger storyline of the entire Bible is the establishment of God's kingdom by God's Savior for God's glory. There's a king and this kingdom, and it's about receiving glory as he establishes that kingdom. And here, it's interesting, we catch a glimpse of David's passion for the kingdom over a thousand years before Jesus came to, to inaugurate it in, 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 its, in its powerful way. And it's as if God, uh, David is acknowledging that God is the king. He's always been the king and always will be the king. And the reign and rule of that king will endure forever. And David saw that. It was what God promised David. He knew that there's a higher and more powerful truth than we often see with our visible eyes, that things are not as they appear. There is a higher hand over human history. It's the hand of the king. And David saw that. We're part of an everlasting and ever-enlarging kingdom. The yeast is in the dough, and that yeast spreads through the whole dough until the whole loaf is affected. That's the imagery that Jesus used in the New Testament about this expanding kingdom it starts as a small mustard seed and grows to a large plant where even the birds of the air come and lodge in its branches. It's an everlasting kingdom. It's the glory of God's kingdom that is the anthem of the Bible from cover to cover. And every character, every book, every story propels that story forward. Then in verses 14 to 20, David unpacks God's goodness. And I like to think of this as in the grind of our everyday getting up, going to work and school lives. Verse 14, he helps the fallen and lifts those bent beneath their loads. That's just very beautiful and poetic, isn't it? We fall down. We are bent over because the load we carry is heavy. That's the nature of the human condition. Where have you fallen down lately? Where have you fallen to temptation or depression or despair or doubt or insecurity or hopelessness or fear? Where, where have you fallen? And, and, and what is the load that you're carrying that causes you to be bent over today? Is it financial or relational? Is it emotional or physical? Is it your marriage or your singleness? What, what is it? What is the load that causes you to be bent over. Well, the, the message powerfully and mercifully in verse 14 is that God is good and wants to help us by lifting us up today. He wants to strengthen and encourage us as we're bent over beneath our load or when we have fallen. Verses 15 to 16. I like how he promises that when we lack material provision, he satisfies our hunger and our thirst as we look to God in hope. God is good, and he wants to provide for our material and physical needs. Verse 20, he protects those who love him. God is good, and he wants to protect us from worry and fear and, and just the outright attack of the devil who wars against us in God's kingdom. And then I love what verses 18 and 19 show. It's an invitation to draw close and intimate communion with the Lord. Verse 18, the Lord is close to those who call upon him. 
we hear the Apostle James echo this statement in his letter in the fourth chapter uh, of the New Testament uh, epistle of James. Draw close to God and he will draw close to you. Verse 19, God is good. He answers our prayers. We read in the text, he grants the desires of those who fear him and he hears their cries for help and he rescues them. God is good and he wants to answer your prayers today. God is good. I don't know about you, but very often when, when I read a, a good book or I, I look at an inspiring painting, I watch a great movie, listen to a very moving song, or drink in the beauty of the natural landscape, I, I'm often uh, moved to respond with a wow, or that's awesome, or that's moving, or that's beautiful. You, you do the same thing. And, and I think of it in a way, in the presence of a good God, as we've just heard David sing and describe, the only fitting uh, response that the worshiper can have is the same one David had in verse 21. Wow, I will praise the Lord. And may everyone on earth join with me in blessing his holy name forever. This is the refrain that David wanted to, to leave his lips in his dying breath and to echo through eternity. So now 3,000 years later, we're reading David's last refrain. And that's beautiful and that's powerful. It's an encouragement for us to live in thankfulness. Now, we would hope, wouldn't we, that being reminded of God's goodness in this Thanksgiving sandwich would be sufficiently strong to motivate us to live full of praise every day of our life, right? But we know differently. Few of us are just naturally thankful people. And so we have to build into our lives rhythms and structures that create opportunity for thanksgiving. That's the human condition. And so as I close today, I want to offer you just a few helpful tips on how we can grow to be people who are more regularly reflecting the character of Christ by being thankful from the inside out. Okay? Tip number one, read a psalm every day. Spending a few minutes every day with this ancient songbook will carry us through the full range of the human experience and allow us to connect with God in, in them all. The blessings and the cursings, the good times and the bad, the victories and the defeats, the high water marks, the low water marks. And if you read one psalm a day, you'll make it through the entire Psalter in, uh, twice in a year. And for some of you who may struggle reading, I would suggest that you read them out loud. Now, not a lot, of, lot to distract your neighbor or, you know, your, your, your sleeping child, but just speak them out loud to yourself. It's meant to be experienced orally. And so that gets actually closer to the original intent when you say it out loud. And then you can come back as you bookmark some of your favorites more regularly. Now, Numbers of you are, are regularly engaged in the discipline of reading God's word. Some of you are not, and that's, that's okay. Uh, but I would say this. If, if you aspire in, in the coming year to be more faithful in this, in your one-year Bible or your one-year Bible app, your, your U version on your, uh, on your phone, then if you don't do anything else, read the Psalms. Don't be compelled to read Old or New Testament. Just stick with the psalm. If you're not a, a regularly engaged Bible reader, start with the Psalter, and you will be blessed in the next year. Secondly, give thanks upon rising and retiring. Now, 
as your feet hit the floor, thump at the start of every day, pause just 10 seconds and say, good morning, Lord. This is the day that you've made. It's a gift from you. I will rejoice in it. Bring your kingdom and fill me now, Holy Spirit. I thank you in your name. Just like that. And it serves as one of the pieces of bread on your sandwich. As your head hits the pillow, say something just like, good evening, Lord. Thanks for another day to live and serve you in your name. I give you thanks. And so in this simple way, we are bookending our daily life with thanks because each day can be a Thanksgiving sandwich. As your feet hit the floor, as your head hits the pillow. Thirdly, I'm going to suggest that you give thanks at every meal. I know many of you do this. Uh, maybe not, not not everyone. So be uh, disciplined in this way. Now, now we're accustomed to saying grace. And I, I want to break out of the, the, the routine of just religiosity. And so here, here it is. On the three occasions of breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or however many meals you eat, punctuate every day of every week with thanks to God using short, non-religious words. It can be something as simple as, thanks, Dad. And that's all it has to be. Everything we have, the food we eat, as well as our lives, our family, our health, our strength, our soundness of mind, the clothes we wear, the joy of friendships that we celebrate, the money in our checkbooks, the jobs that that we have, the favor of God's presence in our church family, the ability to hope and dream and live and laugh and love, and the opportunity to grow stronger through trial and testing of our faith. It all comes as a Gift from the gracious, good God. And everything that you've worked hard to earn, you know, those good grades in school, a college degree, a home, a retirement account, a successful business, they're all gifts from God. Everything we have comes as a gift from God, not because we are entitled to it. And so when we bow our head and give a simple prayer of thanks, it's an acknowledgement of this larger and more powerful truth. Everything we have comes from God, and we offer him thanks. And these mealtime prayers can act as little reminders to us of the goodness of God. No matter where you are, pause and punctuate and say thanks. I think I shocked the, 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 the folks from Busey Bank take us out to lunch every once in a while because they have money to burn in their, uh, in their account. We're part of the special clients, private clients division. So three of them from Busey took Tina and I to eat at Granite City just the other day. And, you know, conversation comes, we take your order, food is set, and they're all ready to dive in. And I just said, would you mind if I said a blessing? Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, okay. And I just said something simple. Thank you, God, for food and friends to share it with. Amen. Just like that. I don't know what God does with those uh, prayers, you know, in the hearts and minds of the people that don't regularly say grace. But for me, I wanted to practice diligently what I'm telling you to do. And so I'm just encouraging you to every day, Give thanks at all three meals. And then lastly, tip number four, use some form of objective reminder to prompt your thanks to God for his goodness. I need help learning the language of faith, uh, thankfulness. And so I've used over the last year what I've called my pebble of praise. Carry it with me every day. It's a polished stone, earthy, a God-made material that I carry in my pocket every day. 
And what happens is every time I put my hand in my pocket, I'm physically reminded at that moment to thank God in the moment. What I've discovered in the last year is how many times I put my hand in my pocket. It's there all the time. And so I'm thanking God as I turn the stone over in my pocket, scratching its surface because it's earthy. It's God made that stone. And so it, it connects me to God in a powerful way. Now, last Thanksgiving weekend, I made available to those of you who wanted to join me with these stones. And today, uh, uh, Debbie offered you a stone as well. And I know, you know, a stone might not work for you. That That's fine. Uh, you know, uh, you could call it your pebble of praise, your rock of remembrance, your object of oblation, or whatever other name you want to give it. Maybe it works better for you to wear a bracelet, something you put on your keychain, some kind of an alarm you set on your smartphone, a note that you put on your mirror, or on the dash of your car, or your refrigerator. I, you know, physical objects are powerful. That's why God gave us communion. It's, it's a physical object. And the object isn't so much important, although I, I would encourage you to select something that doesn't tend to disappear into the landscape of the surroundings of your life, which I found a bracelet can easily do, because pretty soon it's, you don't even, you're not even aware that you're wearing it. If there's a note on your mirror, you, you just kind of see it every day. You don't really even respond. But, but when you put your hand in your pocket or maybe you, know, you attach it to your keychain or, or you do something with it, you, you're physically contacted with that memory every day. And so I just want to encourage you to select something that doesn't enfold into the rhythm of your life and disappear in its surroundings. The object itself is not sacred, but the God that it reminds us of is. He is good. And let's worship him now in thanksgiving. Lord, we're grateful for the powerful words of this song And I pray that you would use uh, these encouragements that we've received today, Lord, to prompt us to become people who from the inside out, uh, like our, our lives are marinated with thankfulness to you, realizing that you are a good God and everything we have comes from you. Put power on your word to our lives where you know each of us needs. And now, Lord, as we lift our hearts and and hands in song and in the giving of our substance that we've worked hard to earn as we give it back to you, may these two things be received by you as tokens that we want our lives to be lived in worship to you in your name. Amen.